Howdy. We are in week three of three, but really four. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Of our series four. And we are going to be talking about the fact that as disciples of Jesus, we are for the other. And as I said over the last couple weeks, we sequenced this series in order intentionally because in reality, even though our faith is a never finished product, there is a, a, an importance to the sequence of how we approach our faith and our expression of faith, that we are first and foremost for Jesus that we are at his feet, that we listen to what he says, that we take in what he says, that we try to comprehend and take to heart what he says. And then, as we move along, we're for each other. Jesus told his disciples that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And then today, we're going to look at the fact that as disciples of Jesus, we are for the other. And to do that, we're going to look at a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, later on in the summer, we're going to do a series on the Sermon on the Mount, but not on this passage. See, see if you listen to it now, then you'll be able to fit it in later. Um, but the thing is, is that we're going to look at a passage where Jesus uh, commands his hearers to love your enemies. I can't think of a better way to talk about being for the other than to go right toward what we're supposed to do with regard to our enemies. Because, you know, not everyone outside of the church walls, not everybody outside of our circle of influence, not everybody outside of our closest connections are enemies. But if what we are called to do is good for our enemies, it will be good for anybody outside of our church walls. And we can be for the other. But in order to get us thinking about that, I want to ask you a question. Does anybody in the room ever do things that they don't want to do, but they have to do? I'm going to ask again. Does anybody in the room ever do things that you don't want to do, but you have to do? Raise them in the air like you just don't care. Some of you may be doing something you don't want to do, but you have to do right now. <laughs> I was thinking about this, the things that we do that we don't want to do, but that we have to do. Let me tell you one of the ones that I do that I don't want to do that I have to do. Mowing the lawn. I can hear by the chuckles that some of you agree with that. Now, I got, a, I got a buddy back home in Cincinnati, uh, Aaron Adams. We call him A.A. Ron. He loves cutting the grass. It's his happy place. Mainly because he's got more property than I have, so he has an excuse to have a riding lawnmower. So I'm not really sure that that... I should be careful what I say here. For him, that's leisure work. But me, I got a push mower. And granted, I don't have a lot, but you know, it's just going line by line, walking back and forth, you know. You get tired after a while, and you're barely hanging on to it. 
I don't know how it's even being pushed after a while. It's not too bad, but here's the thing, though. Sometimes for me, it's just that mowing the lawn is, is going to happen on one of two times. Either it's going to happen on an evening after a work day and you just, you know, want to chill, which in my phase of life with a three going on a four-year-old, there's no such thing as chill anyway. But in this particular case, it's like I've got I've to take an hour out of my evening and do that. Or if I do it on a Saturday, it's like it's an hour out of my Saturday. I've got to now plan my day. The day is now broken in two. It's before mowing the lawn. It's after mowing the lawn. There is no Saturday anymore. It's cut in half by this chore that I've got to do. But I do it anyway. And yes, because I was thinking about what I'm going to say this morning, I thought about why, why I do it. Because the reality is, is I don't generally look out my window and say, my grass is too tall. That sounds like something I want to take care of today. But the thing is, though, is I've realized, number one, I live in a neighborhood. I've got neighbors. And most people want to feel good about their neighborhood. They want it to look nice. They want it to look nice if they've got family visiting. Or they want it to look nice as they're out walking around and and doing things outdoors with their family or their friends. They want to feel good about the neighborhood that they live in. And one small way to help them feel that way is to keep a nice, fresh-cut lawn. It looks pleasing to the eye, you know? As long as you do the trim work and the leaf blower and all the other stuff that you got to do, too. Because you can, you can do a cut lawn, and it's not going to look that great. If you let it go too long and you've got the grass clippings blowing out the side. Anyway, um, but there's another reason that I've, I've started to realize why I do this. And it has to do with my kid. See, I am a completely average size adult. Yes, average. I'll talk about my dad in a little bit. But my dad's 6'4". My little brother, my younger brother, who's not little compared to me, is 6'1". I got stuck with completely average 5'9 height. And I'm not even sure that that's even average anymore. Because people are taller today, so I might just be short. Whatever. But nevertheless, if I step out into my backyard and the grass is a little high, it doesn't really do much to me, you know? I've got shoes on, it's fine. But my son, who honestly could stay outside from morning until dark, and probably if we let him would stay out during the dark to look at the fireflies, when he's out and the grass isn't cut, it can go up to his knees, which are down lower like down here. It can cause him to get itchy and you know, get bug bites on his legs and all that stuff. Or the grass can trip him up. And so I think to myself, you know, he loves being outside and he deserves to be able to run around on a nice lawn. So I get out and I ruin my Saturday for an hour and I cut the grass. Oh, and the other reason I do it too is because my dad taught me that it's good to cut the grass when I was a kid and also made me and my brother do it. And it just stuck. So again, I ask you to think about, as we go along this morning, what are the things that you do that you don't want to do 
but that you kind of have to do, and so you do them anyway. Because when it comes to what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, the passage where he teaches his followers to love their enemies, he is in effect asking his hearers, which I believe are you and I today if we're reading the passage, to do something that they have to do that they might not want to do. Because when it comes to enemies, the last thing you probably think you want to do for them is to love them. Normally, you want to give them a stink eye or to shout at them. Or at the very least, if you're not going to do anything, you want to sit back and think really mean, nasty thoughts about them. But love them? (laughs) No. And it turns out that we're not much different than Jesus' earliest disciples. They had things that they felt and thought about their enemies too. In fact, they had some beliefs about what they should or shouldn't do for their enemies. And in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus has something to say about how his hearers think about how to interact with their enemies. And so we're going to look at that this morning. So, as a reminder, it's Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And this is what Jesus says. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And he makes his, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we're going to unload and unpack this passage here for a moment. Because it's actually pretty daunting. It would have been daunting for Jesus' earliest listeners. And as we've already established, it's pretty daunting for us today. Because it's not exactly in our nature to love our enemies. Jesus starts out by saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now Leviticus 19.18, I don't know why I just said Leviticus weird. It didn't roll off the tongue the way I wanted it to. But in 19.18, we're told to love your neighbor as yourself. If you scour the Old Testament, however, you will not find a command where it says to hate your enemy. So what's going on? Why is it that Jesus' hearers would have heard that they are supposed to love their neighbor and hate their enemy? Well, it turns out that there are some passages, like in the Psalms and Deuteronomy and, and the like, where the Israelites are 
told to uh, maybe not hate their enemy, but not exactly show kindness. They're, they're, they're told to, to uh, do things that wouldn't be kind to their enemies. And then as, as the Jewish people go along, we find out that in the intertestamental period time, leading up to the time of Jesus, that there are also teachings that take root, that imply that you should take care of your fellow Israelite, but not so much be good to those that are outside of that camp. The Gentiles, not so much. Your oppressors, no. Take care of your own, not so much those outside. And so by the time Jesus is teaching his hearers, he's well aware of the ideas that have been circulating in the world. And at the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were under Roman occupation. If you wanted to hate your enemies, you had plenty of enemies around you to hate. They're the ones that are making your life miserable, that are taking from what you earn, that are oppressing you, that are making out, eking out a living all the more difficult. You are in no short supply of enemies to hate. And your theological tradition up to this point has taught you that that is a proper response. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus takes this idea to love your enemy, or you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he says, yeah, this is what you think you're supposed to be doing. But I'm king, and as for my rule, this is what you should do instead. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute or who harass you. You know, the word persecution is taken on a life of its own like everything's persecution. Uh, you know, someone rips on your favorite sports team and you've been persecuted nowadays. Uh, let's, let's, let's back up a little bit here. What Jesus is actually talking about is like we've all experienced people that have done no good to you. They make your life harder. They're harassing. They're, they're mean-spirited. Those people can easily become your enemy. And Jesus is saying, love your enemies and pray for those that are harassing you, that are making your life difficult. Don't speak curses at them, but when you go to your father in private and pray, pray for those very people. And then he gives the basis. The basis for this this new command that is different from what they've all heard they should do. He says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He might be thinking, wait a minute, so that you may be children? I thought we already were children. Well, that's what Jesus actually starts the Sermon on the Mount with. He talks a lot about the identity of his Jewish listeners. He he talks about ideas like you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. You are the cream of the crop because you are the people of God. You know who your father is. He is the God that pulled you up out of Egypt with a mighty arm. 
and gave you deliverance from your captivity. You are his children. And so why does Jesus here say to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be children or may be children of your Father in heaven? Well, he goes on and he says that this Father in heaven that is your Father, he makes the sun rise on both the good and the wicked. That means like if you go out today and it's sunny out and you say, oh, it's a nice sunny day out today. Uh, the wicked person that might be standing a mile or two outside uh, wherever they're at, and they're looking up and saying, oh, it's a nice sunny day out today. Yeah, you both experience the same thing. Even if you think that they deserve a cloudy day, God has given both of you the sun. And furthermore, he says, and our Father in heaven makes it rain. I know I've, I've talked to several uh, people that, you know, are in farming and they've needed rain and I've, I've heard them talk about the importance of rain and how happy they were when we got a couple days of rain recently. Rain in this situation is a good thing. The, the people that Jesus was teaching uh, lived an agrarian life. They were working the fields. They were tending livestock. They needed their crop to grow. It's how they eked out a living on a regular basis. Rain was good. And Jesus says, our Father uh, brings rainfall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Is it shoes favorites here? And only make it rain for, you know, the good person and then make it just bone dry for the wicked. And here's the thing about this world that these people are living in. Most of the time, if you were born into a household, especially if you were a son, whatever your father's trade was, you would learn that trade by both seeing and doing and hearing that your father did and you would follow in that trade. We know that Jesus had an earthly father named Joseph, who was a tecton. We oftentimes say a carpenter. It's really a manual laborer. Probably worked in, uh, in any, any place where manual labor, labor was needed. Uh, uh, constructing buildings and, and, and roadways and and putting furniture type things together, kind of a whole collection of things. And we know that, that Jesus at one point was, was identified in a bit of a snarky way by people that didn't like what he was saying. They said, what is this guy talking about? Isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that Joseph the carpenter's son or the, the laborer's son? Jesus would have been himself as he was growing up in wisdom and in stature and obedience to his parents. That's how Jesus grew up. It says so in Luke. You can look it up. Jesus probably took on the trade of Joseph. Even though his father was God, he still was obedient to Joseph. And so he would have also learned that trade. That was common practice. You know, when I was a kid, and I'll talk about this in a moment here, but my, my dad 
worked some grueling hours in a grueling power plant, and oftentimes I would hear, I want you to go get a four-year degree so that you don't have to work the long hours and the arduous work weeks that I had to work. I want a better life for you. And so oftentimes in our modern culture, if, if mom or dad have a uh, difficult job or one that they don't exactly love doing, they want better for their kids. But in this world, you knew one thing, and that's what you passed down to your kids. So why am I telling you this? Well, see, what Jesus is saying is that if you are your father's children and your father does this, then you should learn and do what your father does. And guess what your father in heaven does? He gives sunlight to the good and the wicked And he brings rain for, not on, for, because rain again is good in this culture, and just like it is today, for the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you want to learn the trade of your father, like every other good kid in the world around you does, then you learn what your father does and you go and do likewise. And then he adds some things on here, and I love this. He, he says, if you, if you love those, and, and the wording in this translation, I'm going I'm to clean this up a little bit. For if you only love those who, who love you, if you only love those who love you, what reward is there? Even tax collectors can do that. If you know anything, tax collectors were derided by the Jewish people, especially if a fellow Jewish person went and worked as a tax collector for the Roman people and liked them very much. But even tax collectors know how to love those who love them. So how are you any better than a tax collector if you can't go beyond that? And he goes on and he, he says, if you greet only your brothers and sisters... What more are you doing than others? Or a better way to say this is, what's remarkable about that? Anybody can greet those that they're familiar with, that they're close with. What's remarkable about it? I'll tell you what's remarkable is we can go and you can greet and be kind and welcoming to those that you don't know or that you don't like or that, I don't know, might even be your enemies. He says, do not even the Gentiles do the same? So here Jesus is playing on, he's playing on the the agitation that the Jewish people have toward these other people groups. He's literally naming their enemies, tax collectors and Gentiles, and saying, if you can't do better than your own enemies, how are you any better than your enemies anyway? And then he concludes and he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Another way to translate it would be, Be complete, as your heavenly Father is complete. Be whole, as your heavenly Father is whole. And again, on what basis does he say this? Well, because your Father in heaven brings sunlight on the good and the wicked and brings rain for the righteous and the unrighteous. 
And if you long to be children of your Father and carry about his business, then you will do the same as him. And what your Father does is perfection because he's God. And if it's good for God, if it's perfect in expression coming from God, then you go make your expression toward others around you perfect as he is. Which if you're sitting here hearing this, just like his earliest followers would have heard it, you are probably shaking at all the times you've been imperfect. Not only to your enemies, but even to those whom you claim to love. Oh, and here's the kicker, by the way. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies. You remember last week when we talked about how Jesus said, you will be my disciples, or the world will know you are my disciples if you do what? Can I hear you say it? Love one another. Did you know that the verb, and yes, according to the old DC talk song, love is a verb, the same verb used to tell his disciples to love one another is the same one used to love your enemies. Hence the reason we win in this order. We are for Jesus, we are for each other, and we are for the other. Because love is a verb. Last week I mentioned uh, the song, How He Loves, and I talked about the background of that song and and how the author talked about how uh, we have just uh, destroyed the word love in our world today. We've made it about anything and everything to the point that it's lost all meaning. But in the teaching of Jesus, which is where we get our real definition of love, love is a verb. It is something that you do. It is action. You don't always have to feel rainbows and kittens and unicorns toward the person that you are loving. Like if you're a spouse, for instance, do you always feel warm and fuzzy toward your spouse at every waking moment of the day? I'm sure I give Angie plenty of reason to not feel warm and fuzzy, but she still loves me in her actions. Do you always feel warm and fuzzy about your children? Children in the room, do you always feel warm and fuzzy about your parents, but you still act out of love? I'm sure no one in here has ever gotten in a fight with a fellow church member before. I hear the chuckling. And yet you are still called to love one another. Love is not about how you always feel because feelings come and go. Emotions are fleeting. One moment you're on cloud nine and the next you can't wait to get out of the room. But love is a verb. It's something that you do. What God the Father does to both the good and the wicked and the righteous and the unrighteous is a verb. He does what? He gives sunlight. And he gives rain. And that's what we're called to do for our enemies. Just like we are called to do for one another. Just like we are called to do for our friends, our spouses, 
our children, our parents, our family, our fellow churchgoers, and yes, our enemies. So what do we do with this? Because I know what we're thinking, if you're thinking what I'm thinking. Well, that sounds good to love your enemies, but I don't know that I can do that. Because I don't like what that person thinks, or I don't like what that person over there did to me, or I don't agree with their agenda, or their value system is way out of whack. I'm not even sure I can be in the same room with that person I don't know how I'm supposed to love the other, especially my enemy. Here's a picture of my dad and me uh, in a second. There we are. Now, I have to admit to you, I showed you this picture mainly because the Reds are like a half a game out of first place, and I just want to gloat about it for a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Cincinnati is the greatest sports city in the world right now. Anyway, um, uh, but that's my dad and I on opening day uh, a few years ago, actually probably 2016. And uh, again, my dad's 6'4". Um, he's tall. He's imposing. My dad is a retired electrician. He worked for Ford. When I was a young child, my dad got laid off several times. He ended up getting hired back on, and that one stuck, and he ended up retiring there. And my dad, uh, my dad worked for Ford after his dad worked for Ford. And I can remember growing up, my dad would have to go through six, seven-day work weeks. No off days, you know? Athletes these days, they're like, we're going to grind 24-7 to, you know, go win on the field. My dad literally did that. Like, there were days he never got off. And long days. In a hot, sweaty, 100-plus degree power plant on concrete floors. Sometimes my dad would come home and would just want to be on the recliner. And as a little kid, I didn't really appreciate how much grueling work that was because I was a little kid. And as I now know, little kids just want to play constantly. I know that sometimes I get home, I don't have to do the manual labor my dad did because, again, my, my dad wanted me to do something different. <laughs> this wasn't it. But uh, he wanted me to do something different than what he had to do. And... And he wanted me to, to have an easier life. Of course, the thing that I picked might not have the physical grueling thing, which is good because I'm not exactly one with physical prowess. But it takes a real grind on the mental and emotional capacity. And sometimes, even I'm not, if I'm not feeling it in my bones, I'm feeling it here and I'm feeling it here. And I know what it's like to get home and want to just sit and recline. And right when I close my eyes to rest, I can feel the knees of a three-year-old immediately hit my stomach and have the wind knocked out of me. Now, my dad would not have ever considered me his enemy, nor do I consider my son. But you better believe 
And that when you grind the way my dad had to, that sometimes the last thing on his mind was to keep up with his two little boys after the backbreaking work. But you know what my dad did? He did it anyway. Some of my best experiences as a kid were the roughhousing sessions where my dad let us beat the tar out of him. Jumping on his back, jumping on his front side. He'd pick us up, he'd flip us around. I also had my dad's shoulders. I didn't get his height and stature, but I got his shoulders. I get shoulder pain pretty frequently, my dad did too. He still did the stuff. One of my favorite things is we had a tree next to a shed outside and my dad hung some long rope and a wood plank on it. And he'd get us out there and we'd take turns and he'd push us and we'd never get high enough. Push us higher, make us go faster. And we'd feel like we were flying. Or sometimes, because the ropes were long, he'd sit us on there and he'd twirl us up before the next thing we knew, we were so far off the ground it was kind of scary. And he'd just let it go and he'd spin our brains out. My brains still aren't here to this day. And I'm sure he was tired. But see, love does. Love does. Love is a verb. I'm not a perfect dad. My dad wasn't a perfect dad. But my dad showed love by doing those things even when he might not have wanted to. Even when he just wanted to hit the recliner, have a nice meal, and get a nap. My best experiences were the love my dad showed by action, even if he didn't have the energy to do it. Jesus says something else later on in the Sermon on the Mount. I just want you to listen to this. He says in in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anything or is there anyone among you who, if your child asked for bread, would give a stone? Or if the child asked for a fish, would give a snake? Which, by the way, my kid would just ask for more bread because that's all he'll eat is like hot dog and hamburger buns. Anyway, so he'd ask for bread twice, but nevertheless, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I love this. See, if you're asking the question, how do I love my enemies? Jesus, my enemies are so mean to me, and they're so bad and wicked and vile people. I can't even associate them. How am I supposed to love my enemies? That's why when we are for, we are first for Jesus, we are for each other, and we are for the other. Because not only do you, are you given the strength to love like Jesus when you spend time with him, when you spend time with the Spirit. And not only are you trained to love the way Jesus loves when you love one another within your fellow people of faith, you are now empowered and emboldened to love the other. 
as Jesus loves. If you're asking how am I supposed to love my enemies, just think about the person or persons in your life that you show love even when you don't want to, even when you don't have the energy to. Think about the things that you do for them. Think about the sacrifices you make. Think about the times that you just want to rest, but you get up off the couch and you do it anyway. Think about your neighbors, even when you don't want to cut the grass, that you get up for an hour and you go mow the lawn so that they can have a nice community to live in. Think about the conversation that you're too tapped out to have, but someone needs a shoulder to lean on, so you stop and you listen. Think about the fact that maybe you're not in the mood to cook that meal or get that drink, but someone's parched or they're hungry, and you go out of your way to make that food or get that drink. Why do you do that? Well, love is a verb. It's not a fleeting feeling, it's something that you do. And if you know how to do it to those closest, you know how to do it for your enemies. And here's the best part. Last week when we talked about Jesus teaching to love one another, he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down their life for their friends. Jesus said love is enacted when we do for those who we consider more valuable than our own lives. Paul once said that while we are yet sinners, Jesus laid down his life for us. Another way to put it is, while we are yet enemies of God, he sent his son Jesus to lay down his life for us. Not to keep us as enemies, to make us his children. Your enemies are only an act of love away from becoming his children. That's why we are for Jesus. We are for each other. We are for the other. Because our enemies are also the people that receive the affection from God. And if we are his children, we will be just like our Father in heaven. Each week we take communion to remember exactly what our Father in heaven does for us while we are yet sinners. He sent his son Jesus to lay down his life to go to the cross, to be a ransom for many, including us. And we take communion not only to remember him because that's what he tells us to do, but in doing so, we proclaim the love and kindness of our Father in heaven. It's Father's Day. So we might as well remember how much our Father in heaven loves us. Because even if you had a tough go with your Father, or even if you're sitting in here missing your Father, 
We have a Father in heaven who loves us. And we're reminded of that when we take communion. So I ask you to take a moment and pause and to reflect on his love, not only for us, but for our enemies. And to consider what it looks like to love Jesus, to love each other, and to love the other. And after we take that moment of reflection, we will take communion as a church family together, and then we'll pray. I invite you to take this bread and eat. This is his body, which is given for us. I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood, which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, our Father who art in heaven, We thank you for being good to us. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for the sunlight and the rainfall. Thank you for the good gifts. Thank you for the people in our lives that we hold dear. Thank you for those little moments of blessing we can often take for granted and overlook but that still show your goodness to us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. And God, I pray that as we go about our our days and our week ahead, that we will spend time with you, that we will love those closest to us, And that we will keep our eyes open for opportunities to love those that we call the other. Whether they are the neighbor we don't know, the clerk at the counter, or the person we deem an enemy. I pray, God, that in our recognition and our feeling and our experience of your love for us, and that the ways that you've shown us how to love one another, that we will be able to enact that and to do those things for all that we encounter. 
I pray, God, that we won't just do that for our sake, but for theirs, because we know that you love them too. We are your hands and feet. We are your children. Help us to live like it, even if we don't think we can. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.